In this week's podcast, we discuss the Biome Tourist Project, solar power in the Pilbara, high-rise in South Perth, Santos, Woodside and big gas projects, Pindan, cybersecurity, our special report on ICT infrastructure, and the latest edition of our Great for the State liftout focused on philanthropy. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Panel and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast. I'm Mark Beyer and joined this week by Dan Wilkie, uh, while my normal partner Mark Panel is touring China. Now, Dan, the number one story for our readers this week was about plans for a, a very ambitious uh, biome project located out at Perth Airport. Now, you've been following this one for quite a long time. What's it all about? Yeah, so um, this is a really interesting concept. Um, it promises to be a bit of a game changer for the um, tourism industry. And so basically, there's a project team that's been put together of some, several WA entrepreneurs from the tourism sector. And they've they want to build five large high-tech dome structures um, celebrating Indigenous culture and WA's flora and fauna. So they're going to replicate all the different regions of WA and pull in an Indigenous aspect as well. So super ambitious concept, uh, $500 million plan. Um, It was originally pitched to be built on the Burswood Peninsula, um, but this week Perth Airport um, was announced as a partner to help facilitate the development. Um, Now they've signed an MOU, to set aside the land while a business case is developed. Now, there's still a bit of mystery of how the project's going to be funded. I will say the project team is very confident that they're going to be able to line up some funding partners in coming months. Um, they can't reveal details yet as discussions are still ongoing. Um, but the Perth Airport was very clear when I spoke to them that they're setting aside the land while the business case is developed. They're not providing the land. So there's still a bit of mystery of whether it will actually go ahead. Um, but so, as so Dan, a, who are some of the key people? So Adam Barnard is the project spokesperson. He's best known for setting up the uh, Adams Tours business, which is uh, WA's biggest touring company. And there's a few um, Indigenous uh, culture experts. Terence Duar is one of them. Um, and there's an Indigenous man called Mick Little who's also involved with Adam Barnard and another venture called Spitfix Brewing, which you'll see in our magazine uh, that comes out Monday. Um, now, tourism groups have been calling for an attraction of scale for a long time. They say that this is what Perth needs. We haven't ha- really had one for about you know 25 years. And um, it really d- I, I kind of agree with them. Um, Evan Hall's at the Tourism Council has been the most vocal. Because um, if you jump onto TripAdvisor and have a look at the top 10 attractions in Perth and put yourself in the shoes of a potential international visitor, there's not much that's going to entice you to come. So it's probably not good podcasting to read our list, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> Number one is Kings Park and Botanic Garden. Then you've got the Swan River, the Perth Mint, the Bell Tower, State War Memorial, Lottery West Federation Walkway, the Art Gallery of WA, Elizabeth Key, Queen's Gardens and St Mary's Cathedral. Now, three of those are in Kings Park. And a lot of them, you know, if you're, you're thinking about going somewhere in Australia and you see that list... Perth is not going to be top of your mind. So, so they're all they're all nice things, but as you say, are they enough to entice an international tourist to come all the way to Western Australia? Mm. Now, you wouldn't say any of these things are iconic for you. You know, it's not like a selfie at the Opera House or the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It's not like the culture in the museums of of Melbourne. Uh, you know, the art gallery is lovely. Um, maybe the museum will be that game changer once that opens late next year. But at the moment, we just don't have that real pull factor. I don't think so. 
hopefully um, the biome team can secure a partner. As, as I said, they're talking to some international companies of some pretty big scale and they're confident and determined. So how big would each of these domes be? They actually are... Uh, it's hard to work out from the artist renderings that they've put together, but it's similar scale to... Um, there's a similar concept in uh, Cornwall called Eden Gardens, and there's also uh, another one called uh, Garden by the Bay in Singapore. And uh, I think Garden by the Bay in Singapore is one or two of these domes. Um, the Perth Biome Project wants to build five, so it's fairly large. Um, it's going to take up, I think, the parcel of land at Perth... Perth Airport was about 14 hectares that has been set aside, so you know it's, it's not small. Mm. Um, I'm certainly familiar with the one in Cornwall, the yeah. Eden Project. That's been going for quite some time and is quite extraordinary. So there it is in southern England and you go inside the domes and you walk into completely different um, sort of in, environmental mm. conditions and, and the different sort of uh, the vegetation in there. Mm. It's quite amazing. Yeah, similar. I, I mean... I looked at the, the Singapore one while researching this story and it looks like something that I'd quite enjoy, you know, it's, it's like a rainforest inside a nice protected area. So hopefully it gets up, but um, unfortunately Perth's got a long history of these mega proposals in the tourism sector that haven't gone anywhere. Um, one of the most recent was the Wave Park in Melville. Um, the proponent put together a plan only to be told at the 11th hour the site wasn't actually available. Um, the Barnett government um, famously proposed an open plan zoo that was uh, taken off the agenda when they were taken out of office. Um, in 2011, there was a $4 billion theme park proposed by a European company. It was supposed to be along the lines of uh, Disney World or Disneyland, um, but there was a falling out between the Italian group and some local reps, and that project just disappeared. Uh, you know, it seems to come up every few months, the concept of a King's Park to Elizabeth Key cable car. Um, Still Elizabeth Key, there was a floating pool that was proposed. Um, it's probably more okay. for locals. So there's a long list of things that just get proposed but never actually happen. Oh, so well, hopefully good the biome project uh, is different. Good luck to Adam Barnard and his team. Hopefully um, they can get it going. <laughs> it would be good, yes. So moving along, um, there's been um, some developments in solar power in the Pilbara Mark with Fortescue Metals Group involved. Can you take us through that? Yeah, so Friday morning there was a, a big announcement about a solar power development um, up at Fortescue's Chichester hub where they've got some of their iron ore mines. Um, this is a the largest um, solar PV sort of power facility in the Pilbara. Uh, 60 megawatts are going to be built and operated by Alinta Energy. Um, and it's on the... Uh, similar things have happened of a smaller scale where you've got an existing gas-fired power plant, you put in some solar power, solar PV as well. Um, you also put in a battery facility for storing the power. Uh, in addition, there'll be a transmission line sort of linking this with other power assets in the Pilbara. Because that's something that's been talked about for a long time. There are lots of power stations up there, um, but they're all isolated from each other. There's no network. Um, hence you, you don't get sort of the efficiency and the backup that you do with a well-run network. So that's been something that's been on the agenda for a long time. Uh, this is another small step forward in that process. So the total investment in this one is roughly $200 million. Half of that is coming from the taxpayers. Right. It's yet another example of, uh, in particular, the Northern Australia Infrastructure Fund uh, bankrolling big projects and I'm 
you know, really intrigued by this. This was a, a, an entity that was set up uh, to develop infrastructure um, of a kind that the private sector could not develop. Um, and yet they're putting money into potash projects, into mineral sands projects, into harbour facilities, into lithium projects, um, and now putting money into a, uh, um, a power development for an iron ore miner. So, you know, there's clearly some upsides in this kind of development, um, but to me it raises lots of questions about how much taxpayer money should be going into private sector projects mm that in, in the past would have been funded by the private sector. Um, it's not but, exactly like Fortescue's short of cash to put something like this together well, either. And Alinter Energy is a large privately owned utility. Now, you know, good on them if uh, the federal government is dishing out money to subsidise a project, um, you know, all credit to the, to the mm. investors who get that benefit. Um, but putting on my taxpayer hat, I, I wonder about how efficiently this money is being allocated. It's a bit like there's a pool of money that the government's got and they're out there trying to find people to give it to mm. um, rather than having a major need that's being addressed uh, by this kind of development. Mm. Uh, nonetheless, um, another project going ahead in the Pilbara mm. and, uh, and more investment and jobs. You said that this has been sort of on the cards and talked about for a long time. Has there been some sort of advancement in technology or has the cost come down to building it? So what's I guess being the catalyst for it. I think with the solar, so I guess there's two elements there. Uh, with the solar, I think the the big thing that's changed is the battery technology, so that you can now store the power um, and and then draw it from the battery. Um, so that sort of is as much works much more efficiently and in a more cost effective way than would have been the case in the past. Um, and then the second element is that longer term goal about building up um, an integrated power network in the Pilbara. Um, but that's, you know, herding cats, bringing together all the big mining companies um, and, and utilities. Um, governments have been trying to do that for years and have not got very far. Now, Dan, I'll throw to you to discuss another topic that has come up um, in this forum previously, um, apartment developments in South Perth. Uh, and in particular, last week, we talked about the fact that uh, Finbar's Civic Heart Project had been knocked back uh, by the Development Assessment Panel. Um, now, in the last week, you've got more information on that. So can you just talk us through you know, the process there and, and what's yeah, come no to worries. light? It was interesting because um, after the JDAP meeting, Finbar was pretty hesitant to actually comment um, prior to the details being released from the meeting. And it took quite some time for the Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage to actually upload the minutes from the meeting to the website. Probably one of those meetings I should have attended, but I had other things on. Um, so basically, it was rejected on the basis that the architecture lacked the memorability and distinctiveness required for the flagship site of the Civic Triangle in South Perth. Um, so following that, Managing Director Darren Pateman from Finbar, he's actually blasted the whole process, um, saying it, looked, it was subjective. Um, and I suppose any review of architecture is subjective. <laughs> I don't know how it can be objective, but his case was that he worked closely with the City of South Perth design review panel prior to the JDAP hearing. They actually revised their design several times in that process. And then the, the, the project was recommended for approval by South Perth planning officers. So it ticked the boxes under the planning scheme. The South Perth design review panel said, yep, that's good. But then, prior to the JDAP hearing, it was assessed by the Office of the State Government and Architect, which was the first 
organisation to say the memorability and distinctiveness claim. So the JDAP rejected it on that those grounds. Um, again, it's sort of a subjective claim, but you know, I can see where, where Darren Pateman would be frustrated. He's had an independent panel review the project. He's changed it several times to suit, and then to be told at the final moment that it needs to be reworked would be rather frustrating. Um, on the other side, though, um, if the site required some flamboyant or some architecture that's you know quite memorable or distinctive, um, I've got a question why the city of South Perth chose Finbar. Um, now, this is no indictment. They've obviously got a formula that works for them. They are Perth's biggest department developer. They build more than anyone else. But they've clearly got a formula that they use. They use the same architect for each project. And, and as, as a result, all their buildings have a similar look and feel. And I don't think anyone would say that they're really going out there on a limb with any of their designs. They're quite conservative. So if the, if the City of South Perth wanted some architectural flair and required some architectural flair for that site, why did they appoint Finbar? That's okay. my question. So it's a, it's an interesting one. Um, the other thing, last year there was a project that went through JDAP and the presiding member said in her comments on whether that was approved or rejected was it wasn't a design competition. So there's clearly a lack of consistency in this process somewhere. So they, they, this, this project it was the glass house um, from Serona Capital. It was lauded for being a very elegant design, um, and apparently it wasn't a design competition then, but it is now. So anyway, and yeah, and layered over that, the government, as I recall, has had a big review of the whole uh, development assessment panel structure, and I think is reducing the number of uh, yes. DAPs that cover Perth, um, and I think that was designed to actually get what more consistency? That was one Correct. of the objectives yes. there. Uh, uh, there's a definite lack of consistency, not only across JDAPs, but within JDAPs. So hopefully for the development sector, they actually get some certainty because that's what the whole system was supposed to bring in in the first place. Okay, thanks, Dan. So, so moving along, um, there's been a lot of action in oil and gas this week. So Santos and Woodside involved. Um, take us through the details, Mark. Yeah, thanks. So Santos... Uh, Adelaide-based company um, announced the purchase of ConocoPhillips um, assets in Northern Australia. Um, this is the second big acquisition um, in this part of the world for Santos. Um, so they're paying about two billion Aussie for these assets. Um, it includes a big stake in the Darwin LNG plant and a number of gas fields off uh, Australia's northern coast. Um, this follows the purchase of Quadrant Energy. That was a $3 billion deal about a year ago. So, you know, with these sorts of acquisitions, um, on top of all their legacy assets in Western Australia, um, Santos is a, an increasingly important uh, business in this part of the world, um, headed, of course, by Kevin Gallagher, who uh, had been a, a senior executive at Woodside, um, who then sort of moved over to Santos as chief executive. So, you know, interesting to see just how big he's building, and that's on top of their assets in Queensland and PNG and other parts of the world. So, um, you know, very successful Adelaide-based business. There's some big development um, opportunities in the pipeline, uh, most notably the Barossa gas project off uh, Australia's northern coast. Um, a lot of work's being done on that one already, and this would provide extra gas to feed into the Darwin LNG plant. So um, there's a big decision confronting uh, Santos and its joint venture partners there, but very keen to go ahead. 
Uh, they're expecting a final investment decision um, early next year. And then the other one is the Dorado oil field. This was a, a big oil discovery off the uh, Pilbara coast about a, uh, well, earlier this year. Um, Carnarvon Petroleum is a minority partner there. Um, they have had some very encouraging drilling um, well tests um, over the last few months and looking to go into um, front-end engineering and design early next year. So, you know, good to see Santos investing more money in this part of the world and, and going ahead with some projects. Uh, the other big oil and gas player in town, of course, is Woodside. They've got two even larger projects, uh, Browse and Scarborough. Now, they put out their quarterly update during the week, and Peter Coleman has talked about the fact that they're continuing their discussions with their joint venture groups. This is proving to be hard work. Um, there's about getting alignment between all the members in these two joint ventures. And it sort of, if you like, was ratcheted up a level when the Premier, Mark McGowan, spoke in Parliament and he came out very firmly and named names. He said that Chevron and BHP need to make some decisions on this. Uh, BHP has a minority stake in the Scarborough Gas Project um, and that's worth, what, uh, $15 billion? And Chevron and BHP also have minority stakes in Browse. That's worth nearly $30 billion. Um, Mark McGowan came out and said, we need decisions on both of these projects. I urge BHP to resolve the discussions as soon as possible. Um, and in respect of Browse, I'd like to see both companies, BHP and Chevron, make it an absolute priority to resolve all these issues as soon as possible. So most unusual yeah. to see a Premier come out and speak so firmly um, and to name names. So effectively he's sort of come in behind Peter Coleman at Woodside. Um, you know, Woodside's been trying hard to get agreement on these. Now their view is that they'll uh, make a final investment decision on Scarborough um, in the first half of next year um, and that prior to that they'll go into front-end engineering for Browse. So, um, you know, huge investments, um, thousands of jobs in construction and hundreds in operation. So, you know, these are two of the biggest um, projects in the pipeline for Western Australia. So uh, hopefully, with a bit of urging from the Premier, um, all those joint venture partners can get alignment and we'll see these projects go ahead. So it's been taking a long time for Browse to get up. So what are the, what are the complexities of it? And what are these issues that they have to work through that the Premier alluded to? Well, look, I think a big factor here is that Chevron and BHP, they're global companies. They've got a portfolio of potential developments that they're assessing. Um, and you know, they're obviously they're going to put their money into assets or developments that they think they'll get the best return from. So it's effectively, you know, Browse is competing, uh, whether it's an iron ore expansion or a potash project or, a, you know, an LNG development in Africa. Um, there are lots of other things out there around the globe. And these companies can pick and choose. Uh, whereas for Woodside, this is their, this is their backyard and these, this is their big opportunity. Um, it's also about getting that alignment that the, the, the groups that own the gas fields are not the same as the groups that own the existing LNG plants, which is which the where the gas will feed into. So, you know, there's, there's negotiations over tolling agreements for the processing. 
So a lot of layers to it. Um, not easy, mm. uh, but hopefully they can get it over the line. Mm. And just back on Santos, um, putting my property hat on, as I wear quite quite often, um, the, the, I think it's going to have repercussions in the property sector. Well, repercussions for a rumour that's been swirling around the property sector here in Perth for a while, that Conoco Phillips was in line to underpin a new office building to be built at Capital Square. Now, the developer behind it, AAIG, lodged a new development application last month, um, but and ConocoPhillips has been sort of talked about as the anchor tenant uh, that would go in there. They've made no announcement and haven't been willing to comment on it, um, but selling out of the WA assets would really seem counterintuitive to me to entering a major commitment like that. So um, I'll keep an eye on that one as it evolves. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Now, another one, uh, Pindan. We spoke last week about the fact that Pindan had a change of ownership. Um, the Singaporean group Oxley Holdings has come in and become the, the 100% owner of Pindan. Uh, so that's obviously stabilised the ownership side, but there's also been some news on the contract front. Yeah, so some good news for, for a company that seems to have had its issues in recent years. So a quick re- recap on Oxley. They took control for zero cost after disclosing that Pindan had missed several performance targets. Um, but this week, Pindan was able to announce that it won a $90 million contract at Rio Tinto's Kudai Dairy Mine uh, in the Pilbara. And they also recently contracted to build a $49 million six-storey apartments project in Subiaco um, for a relative newcomer in WA development called Celtic Properties. So while the company's obviously had some recent issues with the ownership structure, um, and they reportedly shed 30 employees last week following Oxley taking control, they're still winning work, and hopefully for them, they're back on a path to profitability. Okay. So, Mark, um, you've been looking very closely at the information, communications, and technology sector this week. Uh, it's one of our cover features in our magazine on Monday. Uh, what have yeah. you written about there? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, look, um, a few elements to that one. Uh, firstly, a, a little newsy item that's related to the IT sector. Uh, there's been a new group formed across Australia to work in the field of cybersecurity. Now, this is a theme that we've talked a lot about um, over the years. Um, it's it's a, seen as a growing business risk um, you know, for pretty much every organisation. Lots of small consultancies out there and, and lots of big international firms in that space. What's really interesting is that BGH Capital, so they're a big private equity group out of Melbourne, in fact the same group that bankrolled the privatisation of Navitas. Uh, they partnered with Rod Jones so that you know, the private investors could take over that business. BGH has formed a what we call a roll-up where they've got 12 cyber security consultancies around the country, um, including two in Perth, uh, Diamond Cyber Security and Asterisk Information Security coming together to form this new business called Cyber CX, um, being led by a guy that uh, had been at Optus, uh, John Paterides. Um, they'll have about 400 people around the country. Um, I just thought it's a really interesting signal about the maturing of that sector and how significant it is. Uh, look, more broadly, uh, for my feature, look, the, the main theme I explored was the National Broadband Network. Um, that construction of the NBN is approaching completion. Uh, they've got a target date of uh, June next year. Um, in fact, in Western Australia, they're more advanced than most other states. Um, they say that 98% of premises in WA are currently able to be connected to the NBN. 
um, in its different uh, guises. Um, this is leading to a, a point where NBN is going from a construction company to a services company and raised a lot of concerns by the incumbents, um, you know, the Telstras and the Vocuses of the world. Their view is that the NBN company, uh, which operates the network, is straying from its core role as a wholesaler and is starting to engage directly with customers who currently deal with the likes of Telstra and so on. Um, also, the ACCC has been getting very involved. Um, they've raised a number of issues in the way that uh, the NBN company operates its network and its relationship with, uh, with customers and its relationship with the, the retailers. Yeah, it's a really very complex and quite fascinating area where the, the network that Telstra has, the network that the NBN company has built, the network that Vocus has got, they all sort of interact with each other. So in a sense, they, they use each other's networks, but they're also competitors with each other. And then there's sort of a wholesale and a retail element to the way the different parties operate. Um, so it's, it's a very fluid situation. Um, and I think it'll you know, continue to be a lot of um, inherent tension between all of those different parties there. Um, a big role for the regulators like the ACCC. So I've put together a, a sort of a quite detailed report where we run through all these sorts of regulatory issues. Um, lots of change going on, lots of big investment um, and, and a really quite fascinating situation. So um, all there in the next edition of Business News. Sounds like a major upheaval of the way Australia communicates. Um, so you've also had a big in-depth look at the philanthropy sector uh, this week, Mark, for the latest edition of Great for the State. So what are the highlights in that? Yep, so look, Great for the State, that's our um, monthly lift-out. It's a 12-page lift-out around the theme of philanthropy. Um, very interesting sort of field. I really enjoyed putting this one together. I did an interview with Elizabeth Perrin. So she's the daughter of uh, the late Stan Perrin. And been given a quite daunting task of continuing the legacy that Stan put in place. He was renowned for many years as one of Western Australia's most generous philanthropists. Um, she's now chairing the, the Stan Perrin Charitable Foundation. So I've had a good talk to um, Elizabeth Perrin about what she's doing there. Um, and, and you know, essentially she's looking for a lot of continuity, um, but a lot more insights there. Spoke to Jenny Allen. She ran Youth Focus for a long time. Um, that was a very successful group. Uh, they do things like Ride for Youth and lots of other successful fundraising activities. She now heads up the foundation for the WA Museum. Now they're building a very big endowment fund. Uh, they've currently got about $15 million in the bank, aiming to at least double that, and gearing up for when there's the opening of the new museum building. So this is a, the foundation's role is to help the museum operate and sort of bring in exhibitions and do things. Um, also chatted to John Stewart and Graham Dowland. Now the other guys who um, used to run Aurora Oil and Gas, they had great success um, with, their, with that business. Um, it was bought um, a few years ago for about $1.8 billion. So it's been a great case study about how a couple of business people that have done really well commercially have then turned that into something really constructive in the philanthropic space. Um, so John Stewart, his family foundation is very active. Um, and Graham, 
he did something really fascinating. He headed up a, a medical research foundation called Brightspark. Now, it's pretty substantial. It's got about $5 million in the bank, and it was sort of funding medical research. But he looked around and he said, there's a lot of other organisations doing exactly the same thing that we're trying to do. Why are we all doing it differently? So effectively, they've put their money inside another group called the RAIN Medical Research Foundation. Now, this is the theme all through this, the, the research I did for this feature, the overlap where you get lots of different groups all trying to work towards the same goal but in a separate, uncoordinated way. Um, and Graham Dowland with Brightspark was one group that did something about it. So lots to read there um, in our next Great for the State, which comes out with our next edition. Yeah, look out for that. Smack bang in the middle of the magazine and you can just lift that out. Uh, enjoy it um, over a cup of coffee in the morning early evening, whichever you prefer. So we've got a few uh, exciting events coming up. Our next one is uh, Premier Mark McGowan on Thursday, the 14th of November. He's going to give a policy update. Uh, jump on the Business News website or give us a call on 92882100 if you'd like to get a hold of tickets for that. And our 40 Under 40 Awards nominations are open for that one as well. So if you are or you know of any uh entrepreneurs or business owners who are making a real big difference in WA, who've been very successful and are under 40, please uh, jump onto the 40 Under 40 website. Uh, nominations are open now. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, and Mark. that's it for this week. Over and out. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.